I have a two-year-old daughter. Her name is Rosemary, and she's awesome. She has this habit these days of getting up before everyone else and involving herself in things in our house that she would not normally be allowed to be involved in. For example, recently I, she had chocolate all over her face. I didn't know why. It's because she had gotten up at 6 a.m. and helped herself to some ice cream sandwiches out of the freezer <laughs> and take, taken them to bed and ate them. Another morning, she woke, we, she woke up and she was covered with like corn husks and corn silks because she had gotten an ear of corn and taken it to bed and shucked it and pulled all the corn chips out and eaten it. Raw. Yeah. God bless her. Um, so it's, sometimes it's cute, sometimes it's not cute. She, on Monday, I heard a little rustling, and I got up, and she, she heard me coming, and she turned around, and she dropped literally the bottle of children's Motrin that she was just, like, <laughs> drinking. And thankfully, it was, like, not enough to be, like, toxic, you know what I'm saying? Because I scared her when I walked up, and she, like, spit it out. And it was awful. Um... This morning, I got up, and I heard, like, a little trickle of water, and my wife buys, like, nice dish soap, because it's, like, her one thing that she can, like, splurge on. Like, at least if I have to wash these dishes, it's going to smell good. And uh, Rosie had washed her hands. It had just been put out that night with three quarters of the bottle of dishwashing. It was, like, all in the sink. It was awful. And... In order for her to grow and to become all that she can be and to uh, be safe, and in order for our family to be full and functional, um, we have to clear the counters in my house at night. Okay? We have to clear away these things that are going to prevent her from flourishing. And in a similar way, I guess you could argue that the ice cream sandwiches don't prevent her from flourishing. Uh, They make her even more fabulous. But um, in a similar way, God clears things from our lives that prevent us from flourishing in the way that he wants us to. Case in point, the Christian message is a message of welcome and inclusion. It's a message of God himself welcoming his enemies as his children into his family. That's what it's all about. Yet from the very beginning... Christian people have struggled to live like we are a welcoming and inclusive people. It has always come more naturally to us to huddle up and and focus on what's going on inside to exclude them than it is to reach out and go out and to tell people about Jesus and welcome people in to the church. So God clears away the things that, that begin to make us want to huddle up so that we can actually reach out to other people. Acts Chapter 8 is a story of God clearing away um, the, the comforts that we might have that keep us from proclaiming to the world and welcoming people in. So I'm going to read it, and then we'll dive in. Uh, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. Stephen had been a leader in the church, and he was killed by the uh, religious authorities. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. 
And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Down to verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you're reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this, Like a sheep was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I, about whom I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with, with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. Uh, this is the word of the living God, and I'm going to ask his blessing on it now. Uh, Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that we can gather around it, no matter who we are, no matter what we think about it, no matter how distracted or hurting or resentful um, or hopeful and excited we may be. You are always the same yesterday, today. And forever. And so we ask that you would help us to see you in your word. And Lord, we take a moment to, to pause, even as we are mindful of our campus and want to pray for our campus and for ourselves. Lord, um, we are hurting for our brothers and sisters who live in Mexico City and who live in Puerto Rico. Um, still, we are mindful of our brothers and sisters who live in Houston uh, and in Florida and those who have lost, those who have been hurt, those who have been displaced. And Lord, we are grateful that you know each of them and that you know each of their story and you know where each of them are. And Lord, you long for redemption and restoration in the world. So Lord, we ask that you would bless those communities, that you would send the aid that they need, that even through this moment, they would get a sense of your goodness. And so would we. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to talk about tonight three things that God clears away from our lives to enable us to... um, welcome people in to the community and enable us to tell the world about Jesus. And the first one is that God is clearing away the comfort of home. God clears away the comfort of home in our lives. At the very beginning of Acts, Jesus tells his followers, he says, look, I'm going to leave and go to be with my father and I'm going to send my spirit to come. And when, he, when the spirit comes, he's going to fill you up and you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, which is where they were, in Judea, which is like the surrounding area, in Samaria, which is a little bit farther, and to the end of the world. He says, that's what's going to happen to you. But if you have any experience with Christian communities, you might, this might feel familiar to you. As soon as they started having some success and people were coming to faith and the, the group was growing and they were liking each other and enjoying each other and really loving each other, they kind of forgot 
about all those people out there in Judea, Samaria, and the end of the, in the earth. And they were just like happy to be in Jerusalem. They enjoyed that community so much that they forgot what Jesus told them about going out into the world. Until these religious and civil rulers come along, they begin to be threatened by this growing group of Jesus followers. So they decide to stamp them out. They kill a guy named Stephen, who was one of the young leaders in the church. They stone him to death. And then a full-scale persecution breaks out against the church. As we see in the passage that this guy Saul, who we'll talk about next week, is just dragging off Christian people to prison. And that drives the, the Christians that are living in Jerusalem out of Jerusalem into you guessed it, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the world. And it's actually the persecution itself, the fact that they are persecuted in Jerusalem, that drives them doing the thing that God told them to do. My emotional health is sinfully connected to the success or failure of Auburn University football. Um, Auburn lost to Clemson two weeks ago, and I had angry, fitful three hours of sleep that night. Because I still firmly believe that we should have won that game by two touchdowns. Anyway, in 2011, just mere days after my oldest child, Georgia, was born, the Auburn Tigers played the Oregon Ducks in the 2011 BCS National Championship game. It was a wonderful game. It was a great game. They were led by none other than the immaculately beautiful Cameron Jarrell Newton, who was number two at the time, number one in our hearts. And... uh, (laughs) And uh, deep in the fourth quarter, Auburn and Oregon were tied at 19... And a guy named Mike Dyer, who since threw his football career away, but that's fine, um, <laughs> took the ball, and he's a running back, and he ran it up to the right for about six or seven yards before he was tackled. And uh, it appeared to everyone that he was tackled and he was down. He popped up, but there was no whistle, and there was just a bunch of larger-than-average humans standing around trying to figure out what was going on until Dyer realized he was, in fact, had never been down. His knee had never touched the ground. The ball had never touched the ground. And so he broke off a 40-yard run that was beautiful and amazing and set up a game-winning field goal for the Auburn Tigers. Now, it is not despite the fact that Mike Dyer was tackled that he succeeded and set up a game-winning field goal. It is actually because he was tackled. If he had not been tackled right there, uh, he would have been tackled in a few yards. But the fact that he was tackled and he went through um, a, dis- a minor discomfort allowed everyone to stand around and for him to break off for 40 yards. That means a lot to me. Everyone else is like, I really don't care about this Auburn story. <laughs> in much the same way, God allows um, discomfort into our lives and actually says that his gospel, the kingdom of God, is going to advance not despite persecution, but because of persecution. Um, Discomfort and persecution are the thing that drives the mission of God's people. And it's precisely the danger and loss of comfort for the people in this passage that propels them to go out into the world and be who Jesus called them to be. And why does that matter for you? Why does it matter that these people were persecuted and that means they left Jerusalem and a lot of people came to know Jesus? This is why. A lot of you in the room are Christian people. Not all of you. We're glad everyone's here. Um, But a lot of you are Christian people. And you think that suffering and discomfort mean that there is something wrong is happening in your life. Whereas what this scripture is teaching us, suffering and discomfort are not the exception for Christian, but the norm. The Christian life is always to be marked by suffering and discomfort. 
And look, God doesn't always give us... Some of you guys have experienced massive discomfort and suffering in your lives. God doesn't always give us a reason why we go through hard things. But he's always at work in our suffering and in our discomfort to do something bigger and more beautiful than our suffering might seem like. And we should know that because the most significant act in human history from the Christian perspective, is the emotional, spiritual, physical, personal suffering of God himself at the cross. And when God in his infinite wisdom decided to save people, the way that he intended to do that was by his own suffering. Suffering is the norm in the Christian life. Uh, last week, Lissy was talking about the South Korean church. She spent the uh, last semester in South Korea as in as of a Korean heritage <laughs> And uh, it was beautiful because she was talking about, um, you know, the South Korean church has lived for decades under the imminent threat of danger from their uh, neighbors to the north. Something that we now seem, it seems new and novel to us. They're like, well, you know, welcome to my world, you know, for literally generations. And uh, is it on balance a good thing that believers in South Korea live under the threat of danger? No. I don't think that anyone would argue that's a good thing. Has God used that discomfort and suffering to bring his people in South Korea closer to Jesus? Absolutely. Without question. Lissy's grandfather, and I just wanted to point this out just to honor Lissy's family, the Somerville family. Her grandfather uh, suffered in Korea. He's a Korean man. And uh, came to the States, married, settled down into a little bit of comfort and decided he wanted to be a pastor, like he was called to the ministry. Um, But then when he was in church, he realized that all these American people were going to Korea to serve the Korean people and take the gospel to Korea. And he decided if these people are going to go, his heart swelled with care and compassion for his people. And he went to Korea. And both of Lissy's parents actually grew up next door to each other and very sweetly. In Korea on the mission field, he moved into danger and discomfort because of the gospel, because he understood something about Jesus. And my question for you is, what is your relationship to comfort? Are comfort and safety always assumed to be God's blessing in your life? Like when you're safe and comfortable, are you like, this is what it means for me to be blessed. And when I'm not safe and and uncomfortable, then something is going wrong. Um. Is comfort and safety non-negotiable for you as you follow Jesus? And what I mean by that is, I will follow Jesus until my life is, is not comfortable, or until I'm in danger, or until I'm, in, I'm going through pain. Are you involved in RUF or in your church solely because it's a comfortable place for you to huddle up? Um, I know that this community can be that. Um, and, my, and the reason why I ask that things is not to go... Now, shame. You should feel shame because you like to be comfortable. Okay? Hopefully, you don't hear that. The reason I ask is because, as a friend of mine says, almost all of the goody in life happens outside of the comfort zone. If your relationship with Jesus is unto getting comfort and safety, um, then you're missing out on so many of the beautiful and wonderful and life-changing things that Jesus has for you, because functionally you care more about your comfort than about Jesus. Uh, and he wants to give us something better than that. So Jesus clears away the comfort of home. That's what he did for his people in Acts. But also he clears away the comfort of our tribe. All of us belong to a tribe of people. 
This baby church is driven out from Jerusalem, and this guy Philip ends up in Samaria. Now, um, it's an understatement to say that Jews and Samaritans didn't like each other. Um, They had so much hostility toward one another that if a typical Jewish person was walking somewhere and they had to pass through a Samaritan village or town, they would walk even miles out of the way just to avoid getting the dirt on their feet of a Samaritan village. And I'm not going to go into the reason why they had so much issues. It was theological, it was historical, it was personal. Um, Jews called Samaritans dogs. If you're familiar with the story of the Good Samaritan, you know, where like there's this Jewish guy and he's all beaten up on the side of the road and like a priest comes by and a scribe comes by and they don't help him and then this Samaritan guy comes by and he helps him. The reason why everyone was so pissed off at Jesus for telling that story is because the dude was a Samaritan. Like the good guy in the story was the Samaritan and people were like, there can't be stories where Samaritans are good guys. They're always bad guys. Yet here Philip is, he's in this town in Samaria, and he tells them about Jesus. And lo and behold, all these people are excited about Jesus. And God starts working in them, he's healing them. They were ready to hear about Jesus. And my question is, when I read this, is I'm like, how surprised do you think Philip was? These were people that Philip did not like. People that, that Philip previously would have thought should never hear the gospel. It's not for them. They're lower than humans. How humbled do you think Philip was that he's in Samaria and these people are coming to Jesus? Persecution drove Philip out of Jerusalem. Look at verse 8. It says there was so much joy in that there was much joy in that city. Persecution drove Philip out of Jerusalem to bring joy to his enemies. And God may be driving you out of your tribe to bring joy to people that, are ho- that you are hostile toward right now. Very often, God is calling you to people that you don't like or that you are skeptical of or people that don't like you or are skeptical of you. And that requires you to enter spaces that are unfamiliar to you. Spaces that feel hostile to you, where you feel very much like the other. Spaces where you have little to offer, but a lot to learn. Going after people that, that you are hostile toward means to risk being misunderstood by the people that you're trying to talk, tell about Jesus. It, it means risking being understood by your own, misunderstood by your own tribe. Uh, and, and, my, and the question is, are you willing to be misunderstood? Um, Are you willing to be called names? Uh, Are you willing to feel awkward? Uh, A lot of us in the room are not used to being in situations where we feel like we're the only kind of us that's in the room. But that is what God is calling us into. A few years ago, we had a student named Jonathan. He's a great dude. And uh, he was studying possum blood. Uh, Just, you know, (laughs) because of Appalachian. And... um, I met Jonathan at, we met some of you guys at our spiritual opportunities fair, and uh, we met Jonathan at our spiritual opportunities fair, because he was the president of, the, of what was at the time called the Appalachian Atheist Agnostic Association, and, um, and I met Jonathan and connected with him because they had hilarious flyers. They were like, all of our flyers, like all the campus ministry flyers are so lame, because we're like, please like us, um, <laughs> and like, want to come hang out with us. And they're just there just to, like, have fun. And the flyers were, there, were like, intentionally just really making fun of Christian people. And, of course, I, I enjoyed that. And so, um, so we struck up a relationship. 
And we mutually enjoyed one another. Even though it's like, you know, this is, you would think on paper, groups of people that should be hostile to each other or don't like each other. Their flyers were literally making fun of me. Um, And most of the time when I sat down with Jonathan, whatever he wanted to talk about, I literally didn't know what to say. Because the dude is just like next level intelligent. And uh, there was all these times that he would get frustrated with me because I didn't have like a good response um, to what he was asking me. And uh, I'll, I'll be honest with you, nobody was more surprised when Jonathan came to faith in Jesus than me. Because I'm like, I'm the primary person he's meeting with, and most of the time I'm like, dude, that's a good question. Um, <laughs> I'm like, we can look at the Bible, you know, and um, I mean, maybe, I think maybe Jonathan was more surprised than me when he became a believer. And he's like in seminary now, want to be a pastor. And the reason why I share that story is because you might be surprised what God is doing in somebody else's life that's outside of your tribe. Like when you leave your tribe and go, I'm gonna, I want to go take the gospel to somebody else, you might be surprised at how much work God has done. When, when Philip arrives in Samaria, these people are ready. God has been at work. Something that we always talk about here is that God has been at work in your life every day of your life, loving and pursuing you. God is at work before you show up, while you're there, and after you leave. And if we're going to go outside of our tribe, outside of our comfort zone... We always bring our like, cultural baggage to the table. We all have assumptions about how the world works. We have preferences. Um, we have ways of speaking, words that we use. And uh, do you make any sense outside of your tribe? Like to the people around you? Like Not like, oh, they're weird, but like in a mysterious way that makes me want to know more. But like in a, I literally don't know what you're talking about kind of way. Um, do your assumptions and preferences hide Jesus from your classmates? Uh, I used to do RUF at the Savannah College of Art and Design. It's a very different kind of place than that. And we had this one girl, and she was like a Christian girl, grew up in a Christian home. And I realized one day that she was part of our RUF, but she literally had zero friends that weren't Christians. And I thought that was kind of weird, so I was asking her, I was like, hey, like, do you have friends that aren't Christians? She was like, no. I was like, don't you feel like that's weird? And she was like, no. And, uh, and so I was like, well, what about the people in your class? And she was like, you know, I see them, you know, but they're not my friends. And um, I was like, most people don't like just straight up admit to that, you know. Um, and so I was like, you know, trying to be like pastoral, you know, I was like, well, what about Jesus? You know, like, um, she was like, well, I know what you're going to say. That Jesus was friends with all these people that weren't believers and that were like a mess and strangers and outsiders and all that stuff. But like he spent most of his time with the disciples. And I'm like, I, I, I go to myself, well, but who are the disciples? Like these are like this most randomest people in the world. Like these are people that didn't get it, didn't understand, hated each other, had nothing to do with Jesus. And Jesus went out and found them and made them into his friends. Um, Jesus is calling us outside of our tribe. And he clears away the comfort of our home and the comfort of our tribe so that we can move toward other people to welcome them in. And this is the last last thing. God clears away the comfort of spectating. We really enjoy spectating. A lot of y'all grew up and your entire religious experience was spectating. But thankfully, God loves us enough to clear away the comfort of spectating. Philip is getting good at at not being comfortable at this point in our story. An angel comes to him and literally says, hey, why don't you go to this road? It's in the desert. And that's like in, like in transmission, you know. 
And Philip goes. He goes into the middle of the desert, and he's, he's standing by some road. I'm just imagining, like, kicking a rock or cactus, you know. And, and he's out there, and, like, lo and behold, this person comes by in a chariot. It's like, a, you know, a horse and, like, a dude standing in the back. And uh, this guy comes up, and it's this eunuch from Ethiopia. And this is what that means. The, king, the word Ethiopia there refers to the kingdom of Nubia, which is a huge, super advanced kingdom just south of Egypt and Africa. And uh, it abutted Egypt. And he was very important to the queen. He was like a finance minister. He controlled all the money. He's like the sort of commerce secretary. Um, there's someone in our group that wants to be the commerce secretary one day, so that's a shout out. Um, he's the com- commerce ex- secretary. He's very important to the queen. And that's why he was a eunuch. A eunuch is someone that when they're young in their life, are castrated so that they are safe to be around important people. It's pretty hard to imagine. He's a minister of finance. And he's also super wealthy because the the text says that someone was like, the castration thing just blew straight by me and now we're just going to keep on talking. Okay. Um, uh, He was also quite wealthy because he says that he's in his uh, chariot reading Isaiah. Which meant that he had a scroll of parchment that someone had sat and re- copied out Isaiah by hand would have been super. It's not like he just like pulled up his like Bible app, you know, on, on his on his iPhone as he was going. Like this is a, this is one of the most uh, expensive items someone could possibly own, and he's riding by. And just imagine Philip standing there, and this guy's coming by. And when Philip went to Samaria, well, uh, well, just a quick reminder. Um, just to, to give us some context, um, when this chariot comes up, it's not like a black Ethiopian guy pulling up next to a white guy. Like, nobody in this story is white. This, Philip isn't white. Um, this is a Near Eastern Semitic person talking about Jesus with a black African person. And uh, this is the gospel going from a brown person to a black person. Um, And Europeans were just a completely unreached people group at this point in history. Those were like barbarians, like people that, like there's dragons over there, like I don't even know what's over there. Um, And I think it's good for our souls in a predominantly white context. It's good for our souls and minds and relationships to recognize that the beautiful inheritance that we have that is the scripture and is the faith that we have in Jesus is one that's handed to us from brown people. Um, just want to remind, just a reminder, I think sometimes we think like, okay, Jesus hanging with the disciples is like white dude, 12 other white dudes, and everyone's just like white dudes just hanging out together. <laughs> in Acts, the first fully non-Jewish person to come to faith is a black man from Ethiopia. And when Philip went to Samaria... That people were ready to hear the good news. And same here. Um, And I mean, look, this dude rolls up on Philip. Of all the passages of scripture that he could possibly be reading, he's reading Isaiah 53. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation for his life is taken away from the earth? And he goes, is the prophet talking about himself or another person? Would you like to talk to me about another person who may have been slaughtered like a sheep? You know, uh, it's like it's like just waiting for Philip there again, saying that God is at work in people's lives. If we just merely get into relationship with them, this man has questions about the scripture. And what I love about what Philip does here is that Philip gets into the chariot with this guy. 
And he goes, can I help you understand what you're reading? Uh, God provided an opportunity for him, and, and he got involved. Um, where can you jump in, if you're here and you're a person that knows Jesus, where has God given you opportunity to jump in to life with someone, to, cons- to give them the basic kindness of exploring the scripture with them? With the assumption that God has been at work in this person's life up until this point. Um, How can you put yourself in a place where you'll have opportunity to share Jesus? Something that that the guy said at our fall conference this weekend. He said, get close enough to people to tell them why you need Jesus. Are you willing to get close enough to people to tell them why you need Jesus? To stop spectating and to get involved. And maybe you're here and you're, um, you're not yet trusting Jesus and you're kind of considering these things. Are you willing to vocalize your questions like this guy did? To say, I don't know if I understand what this means. Will you help me? Um, Are you open to receiving answers? Are you open to exploring Jesus? Are you willing to be surprised by what you might hear? Jesus loves to bring in the person that seems like they're the farthest away. That literally seems like they're on the end of the world. And this guy gets baptized. And this is what baptism is a sign of. Baptism is a sign that God has brought you into his family, that you belong to God. And what that means is when this guy got out of the the chariot and he was baptized by Philip, um, this man that would have been considered from the end of the earth is now brothers with Philip, is now of the most intimate personal relation with Philip. And how lovely is that? That this guy that was randomly going down the street, wondering about this person in Isaiah, meets a guy he doesn't know, and he says, that's Jesus. And he gets baptized, and suddenly he is brothers with that person that he saw on the street because he was willing to get in the chariot. The love of Jesus led Jesus out of comfort. It led him into hostility. It led him into being misunderstood by everyone who knew him. And he was deeply involved and committed when he could have stayed out of it all. And that's because Jesus believed and believes that his life is better with you in it than without. Because he wants you to be in his family. And will you allow your comfort to be cleared away so that you can invite somebody in? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much that you have been kind to us to invite us in, to welcome us in. Lord, we love to be comfortable. We love to huddle up. We love to be with our people. We love to have a predictable experience. And yet, Lord, we confess that that is not um, the full and rich and beautiful life that you have for us. So, Lord, would you teach us to be um, not lovers of comfort, but lovers of our neighbor and lovers of God. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.